Hi, this is Father Tim, and welcome to RTB, Read the Bible Podcast. RTB offers students a Bible reading plan with commentary and questions and answers as they go on the journey to read the Bible. Okay, so here we are. We are at the last episode, the last in-person class session of RTB for the semester. So we are going to finish tonight with the letters of Paul, the what are often known as the pastoral letters, the letters to First and Second Timothy, and the letter to Titus. And just by way of announcement, next semester we will pick back up. We're going to take a big break, and the next episode should be released on February 8th, which is quite a while, and we are going to study the prophets. So instead of starting with the Old Testament right from Genesis and working our way through. I uh, was thinking about it, praying about it, talking with students that here at St. Paul's we often do what's called the Story of Salvation Timeline Bible Study where people often go through Genesis, but when I started asking questions, almost nobody had actually read the prophets. So we want to actually go into the prophets first and we're going to answer the question of what is a prophet, who are the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets, and then we are going to dive in to show how the prophets point to Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy itself and what's often known as the prophet we are looking for. So we can look forward to that. But tonight we're going to dive back right in and get to the last three letters of Paul, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These are commonly referred to as the pastoral letters, And they're referred to that way because they are written, again, not to a community, not to to address necessarily something wrong. They are written to individuals. They are written to Timothy and to Titus. And it is Paul exercising his sort of pastoral authority to help lead and guide Timothy and Titus, who are also shepherds or pastors in charge of a community. I learned recently, in the, just kind of studying for this, that the, past, the term pastoral letter is actually a relatively recent uh, uh, label for them. Um, that's almost universal what people refer to them nowadays. But all the way back to, I think it was the 2nd and 3rd century, it was often referred to as, the, they were the letters esteemed for ecclesiastical discipline. They're letters of church discipline. And I bring that up because I think this is actually important. We're going to talk a little bit about doctrines versus disciplines and what is being taught because there's some great questions and often sometimes people can kind of use these letters to kind of point to what is the Catholic Church doing with some of its teachings and some of its practices. It seems to contradict direct advice that Paul is giving. So I think that'll be helpful. So uh, we'll just do a quick introduction in general. These are letters sent to individuals. And if you do some of the academic research, I often bring this up, you're going to read all sorts of things about who wrote these questions, doubts, that they are written by Paul. And uh, they're pretty much assumed to be written later because you do see a certain development of Paul's thought. But at the same time, I think as you'll see, again, there's nothing that Paul really hasn't already covered. And you'll see how, in fact, Paul how truly Pauline these letters are. And the sort of doubts of authorship really only came in about 200 years ago, and they come with, again, a certain bias against the Catholic Church. I would just kind of bluntly say that. Because there is a clear kind of hierarchy and system that that Paul is talking about. And um, sometimes people think, well, there's no way that Paul would have actually cared this much. And 
that's just not true. <laughs> you actually see a lot of this in Paul's other writings where he is clearly setting into uh, an order, a structure, right? And so one author put it very well that these letters um, assume that an institutional order is already established, that there is already institutions, there's structures already set up in these communities that Paul founded, and Paul was instrumental in making sure that some of these actually were set up. And so, actually, quite the opposite of this is sort of a new novelty from Paul. Paul is just actually trying to ensure that the communities that he's founded have solid governance, that there are people appointed over these communities. You'll see in Crete and in Ephesus uh, that they have leaders. And so, um, the, the letters are pretty similar. They talk, in, at least in the theology, the at least first First uh, Timothy and Titus are very similar, and we'll see that. We're actually going to start with Titus, then go to First Timothy, and then Second Timothy. So First Timothy and Titus are very similar. Paul just kind of, in general, talks about order and structure within the church. He talks about how salvation is one, and then he goes into, basically, instructions for Christian life. And then in Second Timothy, you have Paul's last will and testament. You have... Um, his final writing, where you can see Paul is basically, um, we could say, on his deathbed of sorts, and writing to his beloved son, Timothy, who has been with him for many times. And so, um, with that, we'll just kind of dive right in, and we'll start with the letter of Paul to Titus. So, if you open up your Bibles to that. So, who is Titus? We don't have a ton of biblical information from him, but he's clearly a disciple of Paul. Um, It's thought he was brought to the Council of Jerusalem. And where Titus is most often mentioned is in 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, Titus is the one who is to bring the collection uh, to the people in Jerusalem. Paul has a great collection for the poor in Jerusalem, and Titus is the one to carry that. So, he's a co-worker with Paul. And his letter, I call the letter to Titus the letter of apostolic appointment. The letter of apostolic appointment. Because the whole purpose of this letter is Paul is appointing, I'm going to use Catholic terms, Titus as bishop of Crete. And he wants to make sure that Titus as a bishop makes sure that there's institution order in the church at Crete. And he gives him authority. And so it actually starts out with Paul as This is, you know, the whole point of why I left you, Titus, in Crete is to make sure that this uh, island has um, a leader. Now, if you, again, go to the academic kind of stuff, where and when and how Paul evangelized Crete, did Paul evangelize Crete? Those are great questions, and there's much debate on those. But in some way, shape, or form, he um, would have gone there, and again, it's... Sometimes people are a little bit nervous about, well, why, if he went there, why isn't it written? Because we don't see him going to Crete and Acts, um, but at the same time, Acts of the Apostles or his, you know, where his voyages were in Galatians aren't intending to tell the whole story. So um, from, the letter, from the information we have in the letter itself, it makes it pretty clear Paul was in Crete at some point. Okay, so let's just start here. The first letter of Paul, or sorry, just the letter of Paul to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised ages ago and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith. 
relatively standard greeting that Paul has been given this uh, authority by Jesus to preach. And then verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5 is very important right from the start. This is why I left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and not being insubordinate. For a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violently or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of goodness, master of himself, upright, holy, and self-controlled. He must hold firm to the sure word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict it. Okay, so Paul leaves Titus in Crete. And why? So that Titus can appoint elders. The term there is presbuteroi or presbuteros, which is the same word we get priest from. So actually in Titus and 1st and 2nd Timothy, you start to see these sort of three orders of the church of offices come out. Because in the Holy Catholic Church, we teach that there are three offices that one enters upon receiving the sacrament of holy orders. Deacon, priest, and bishop. And you start to see a little bit of that in these letters. Now in Titus, it's a little bit interesting because in verse 7, then he says, a bishop. And that's the word there is episkopos or episkopoi. Now in the early church, there was some debate and some... um, understanding about the difference between the roles of a bishop and a priest. And so this is no concern for what the church teaches as the church develops and sees the the doctrine develops to fully understand, as we know now, the three orders of bishop, priest, and deacon. But actually in the early church, some of those roles were, were much shared. So bishop and priest can be kind of seen interchangeably. What's most important to see is that Paul literally appoints Titus a bishop. And he wants Titus to appoint new elders, priests, or even we might say bishops. That I call it the letter of apostolic appointment or apostolic succession, that the current bishops in the church form an unbroken line all the way back to the original apostles. So Paul is demonstrating that he has authority to pass on the authority he has been given by Jesus Christ. This is huge and absolutely important for our theology as we understand it. And so, as he does in this and in Timothy, he just then begins to list a number of virtues that these leaders need to have. And so he lists a number of different things. We'll talk a little bit more about those in 1 Timothy because he does it again and is a little bit more direct. If you jump down to verse 15, there's a great line, To the pure all things are pure, but to the corrupt and unbelieving nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good deed. So Paul is going to be, as you see here in a second, he's going to just start turning and he's going to talk about doctrine, what we are to believe. But he's still, as he is in every single letter, very concerned with deeds. Paul is not a faith alone guy. He is concerned with deeds. So he wants people to, to confess the true faith and practice it in deeds. And why is he writing these letters to, well, first to Titus is one, to appoint and establish him as to ensure that he knows his task is to uh, appoint new leaders, new priests and or bishops, and also then to ensure that he teaches good doctrine, okay? 
Verse uh, chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. Another word, actually, the Greek word really means healthy. Sound, healthy. Teach what is actually true, which will lead to salvation in the faith. So, but as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. And then he goes through to what to teach for older men, older women, young women, and younger men. And so I thought it'd be worthwhile for a college audience to talk about what young women and young men are supposed to do. So it says, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be sensible, chaste, domestic, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be discredited. Likewise, urge the younger men to control themselves. So what you actually just have is somewhat of a repetition of some of the themes that Paul had already introduced as it related to Ephesians. This idea of husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands, but to give credit, um, not to give credit, to give um, right-ordered love within healthy relationships to God and then to each other, right? To encourage uh, wives, young women, to, to fall under the, um, the mission of husbands, which is to fall under the mission of Christ, to love them as Christ loves the church. And young men need to control themselves, self-control, self-discipline. These are things, especially as it relates to young men, that is still clearly very applicable. He kind of goes on then talks about um, uh, what are slaves to do. And you see this in several letters of Paul. We've now seen this several times. Colossians, Ephesians, and you'll see it in Timothy too. He starts out this letter with Titus, what are the virtues that the clergy must have? Now here's what the laity, we could say, the men and women do. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all, training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions and to live sober, upright, and godly lives in the world, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people for his own who are zealous for good deeds. So Paul is saying this grace is for all, both clergy and laity, to renounce worldly passions, irreligion, and to give our hope in Jesus Christ. It's beautiful because he says, Jesus saved us, what? From all sin, from all iniquity, he says, and to purify ourselves, or, or to purify for himself. As we talked about in the other letters, again, Paul is just going to repeat himself in different ways. He's going to teach the same thing in different ways. We are saved from our sins at baptism, but then we need to be sanctified for holiness. Or we are saved from our sins so that we can be saved for Jesus Christ. What I said earlier was justification, sanctification, so that we can ultimately have inheritance with God in heaven. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 15, Declare these things, exhort and reprove with all authority. Titus has authority just as the church today has authority. And that authority is rooted in Jesus Christ, passed down through the apostles. All right, chapter 3 is all about good deeds. So really, as I kind of said, he's going to set up an institutional order, talk about um, what that order is, um, how individuals are supposed to live, talk a little bit about salvation, and then uh, a little bit more about how to live, to walk in the faith. So he says in chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be ready for any honest work. If you jump down, there's, this is actually one of the biggest takeaways of the letter of Titus, is a section on baptism. 
Um, it's a very important section. So he says in chapter 3, verse 4, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace and become heirs in hope of eternal life. So, how were we saved? Through the waters or the washing of regeneration and renewal. What do you think he's talking about? Baptism. Saved through baptism, which is a washing in the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ, so that we are justified, that first step in the process of salvation, that we then might have hope to become heirs of eternal life. That same process of justification at baptism, sanctification, which he talks about up above to be purified for himself, and then inheritance of a of an heavenly life. He said then, the saying is sure. To trust in this, that we are actually regenerated through the waters of baptism. That is denied by certain Christian groups today, that baptism actually saves you or regenerates you, okay? That's why Titus is actually really important in the, in the whole scheme of Paul's writings. He then just kind of reiterates that he's writing this, that you need to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to apply themselves, what? To good deeds. And he says it again in verse 14, and let our people learn to apply themselves to good deeds so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. He ends the letter, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be to you all. So because of the justification that we received by grace through baptism, we then need to apply ourselves to good works. So this letter to Titus is a great letter that's quick to the point and just says, Hey, Titus, I left you in Crete to make sure the church continues. Appoint leaders. They must be of a certain character. Here's how the other men and women should carry themselves. And if understanding that through the power of baptism, we are regenerated, and now we apply ourselves to good deeds. It's a good letter. Very quick, short, but important to see, in particular, the apostolic succession and the importance of baptismal regeneration. Those are the kind of two doctrinal things to take out. All right, let's jump over to 1 Timothy. All right, 1 Timothy is... Who is Timothy? Timothy is one of Paul's best co-workers. He's with Paul um, as from his second missionary journey. He picks up Paul in Lystra and um, has just been with him ever since. And in the Philippians, we read, you know, that I am, my name is Timothy, so I have a great love for Timothy. He says about Timothy, I have no one like him. I have no one like him. And what's great is 1 Timothy will be like Titus. It's Paul. And I didn't mention yet, these, are, these letters probably were written um, in the mid-60s at some point, but there's great speculation of exactly when. So towards the end of Paul's life, it's likely. And um, you'll see Paul's love for Timothy in 2 Timothy. But in 1 Timothy, you actually just see a very similar letter to Titus. Very similar. And in fact, that's why these two really can be read together. Because just as... Paul is writing to Timothy, or writing to Titus, to have him 
lead the church in Crete. He is writing to Timothy to give Timothy clear, consistent, concrete advice, instruction, doctrines, and disciplines of how to lead the church in Ephesus. So Paul leaves Titus in Crete to remain as bishop, and Paul leaves Timothy in the city of Ephesus to be the bishop of Ephesus. And this is what he's writing. Same thing. He's going to talk about um, a little bit about the order, the structure. He's going to talk about how salvation can come. What, how does this relate to the church? And then what are the virtues to live out this Christian life? You'll see that this one is much more developed than the letter to Titus. That makes sense. Paul spent more time in Ephesus. And you'll see a lot more just as it relates to the church. And in 1 Timothy, there are some very important doctrinal kind of uh, passages that I hope to highlight as well. So let's dive into the first letter of Paul to Timothy. Six chapters long, but they're very short chapters. So he starts out just as he does always. An apostle of Christ Jesus by command of our God and Savior. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the divine training that is in faith. Whereas the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So Paul is concerned about Timothy making sure that he passes on the true faith. So I actually, forgive me, I, I call this the letter of pastoral disciplines and the deposit. Why the deposit? You'll see at the very end, the term deposit of faith will come in. But he's giving pastoral guidance, pastoral structure, pastoral order to Timothy because he wants to make sure that the faith remains strong. Because basically certain persons are swerving from the faith and he wants them to know that. Verse 8, Paul repeats what he has said in other places. Paul is not against the law per se. We covered that in Romans. If you want to refresh or go back to the, the recording on Romans, because he says in verse 8, I know that the law is good, but ultimately we know that the law is not enough. All right? And that as it relates to the law, Paul is concerned with teaching sound doctrine. Verse 10, he's worried about um, Immoral persons, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Okay, so my, 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 um, my uh, translation has doctrine. The same word is, uh, is just, it just means teaching. And that's exactly what Catholic doctrine or Christian doctrine means. It's just teaching. All right. So Paul is concerned with sound teaching as it relates to the gospel which he has been entrusted. This is very important. So Paul has been given sound teaching from the authority given to him by Jesus Christ. And Paul is very concerned in this letter to make sure that Timothy passes on this sound doctrine, this sound teaching. Okay. As it continues... Um, He's grateful for Timothy. In verse 15, it says, The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the foremost of sinners, but I received mercy for this reason, that um, Christ came for sinners. 
and realizing that our salvation comes again from the grace of God, or we could say the mercy of God. Chapter 1, verse 18, then Paul says, This charge I commit to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophetic utterances which pointed to you, that inspired by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have made a shipwreck of their faith. It's a great phrase. Some people say, I've lost my faith. Now you've made a shipwreck of your faith. (laughs) Your faith has gone off track, but it's possible to to establish it. And Paul, again, is charging Timothy to make sure that he holds on to the faith that has been entrusted to Paul, given by Jesus Christ. How does he do that? Chapter 2, he gets concrete. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectable in every way. This is good and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Okay, lots there. So he wants to pass on the faith. How do we do this? We need to pray for each other. Pretty simple. But I think what Paul starts to do, and this is often missed, is he starts to enter into the fact that he's actually going to be talking about liturgical prayer. He's talking about the church here, and you'll see that in a second. So he wants us to pray with what? Eucharist, thanksgiving, intercession, prayer, supplication for all. Why? Because God desires all to be saved. This is a very important doctrinal point as well, that certain Christian denominations believe in something called double predestination, that some people are destined to go to hell from the very beginning. We reject that straight up because of this passage, that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, right? This is a really important passage. God desires everybody's salvation. And not just everybody's salvation, to knowledge of the truth. What's truth? The truth of the Catholic faith. He wants everybody in his church. It was once said, Mother Teresa, quit a bit off topic, but a good quip. Mother Teresa was talking with someone, um, I forget who it was, someone not Catholic, and was very impressed with the work. And uh, the man said to Mother Teresa, well, I guess, our, I guess Jesus wanted some people to do good work outside of his church. Mother Teresa said, no, he doesn't. Just that straight. Guy ended up becoming Catholic. <laughs> so God desires all to be saved and come to the full knowledge of truth. Okay? And what is that truth? One God, one mediator, one man, Jesus Christ. So only through Christ can we be saved. It's the only way. And this authority is given by Christ to Paul, then passed on to Timothy. Paul says in verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And he says, he gets into men and women, but again, I think the difference here, you've got to pay attention, he's talking about liturgical worship. He desires that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Also that women should adorn themselves modestly and sensibly and seemingly apparel, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly attire, but by good deeds, as befits women with women who profess religion, 
Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet woman will be saved through, child, through, through bearing children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty. This singular paragraph has drawn a lot of ire, a lot of concern. Paul is clearly being misogynistic. Paul is clearly, um, as some suppose, um, saying that men are more important than women and women just kind of need to be quiet. And that's not true. And it's important, not only important, it's important what the text says, what's also important is the history of the text, how it's been interpreted and applied. Because how this text has been interpreted and applied is simply this, the male priesthood that Jesus desired men to take on a sacramental role in the church, to lift up holy hands, to pray as priests. And that, um, as John Paul II said in, uh, in a letter, that the church has no authority to ordain women because it was in the order and plan revealed by Jesus to establish the priesthood whereby um, men act in the person of Christ. And this is not a knock against women. It's just that there's a difference between men and women. And especially in a liturgical role, there is complementarity. All right, so that's very important. He's talking about, and the church has always understood this, as talking about priests. Because this is, um, this is, um, uh, this is what he's talking about. This is how it's been. And how do we know that? Well, what is his next thing? He goes right into liturgical or church offices. Chapter 3, he moves on to talk about bishops, deacons, and the mystery of our religion. So he says, this saying is sure. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop, that word bishop is episkopos. He desires a noble task. And then he goes on and continues these virtues, a long list. I won't read them out. It's an even deeper list than in Titus. And then he says, deacons, likewise, must be serious, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them be tested first. Then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. The women, likewise, must be serious, no slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife and let them manage their children and their household well. Okay, so he talks about What's the qualification to be a bishop and a deacon? And one of the things that's pointed out is, well, it says he's, the bishop and the deacon should be a husband of one wife. And yet in the church, we have um, bishops and priests, really, that are celibate, that don't get married. This is what's really important. And why in that early church letter that described the letters, the pastoral letters or the letters to Timothy as letters of ecclesiastical discipline is because the church makes a difference between doctrines and disciplines. What we teach, what the church teaches and has been passed on, and how that is applied. All right? And so priestly celibacy is what we call a discipline. Right? And so when Paul is writing this, the church has understood this passage as part of the discipline, not the strict doctrine. Right? And think about it this way, because Paul is evangelizing this town how would it even make sense for there to be a celibate priesthood right from the start? These people have never heard of Christ. They're living their life. There's a certain aspect of celibacy in the early church or in the early Jewish world, in the early pagan world, but not much. 
And it wasn't a sort of virtuous giving of oneself for the Lord. So, of course, it makes sense that he's going to call married men to become priests. And then over time, understood that this is a discipline, that it is uh, more fitting for a number of reasons beyond the scope of this podcast, that the, that the priesthood would be reserved to celibate men. So what is he saying is that a bishop or a deacon has to be an upright, chaste, only married once, a good uh, example to the faith. Okay? All right, let's continue on. Um, 1 Timothy 3.14, another very important, very important passage. Um, sorry, 1 Timothy 3.15 is where it really starts, and this is one worthy of memorization as well. In verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that, now this is verse 15, if I am delayed, you will know how to behave. You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of truth. You ask most Christians or professed Christians today, what is the pillar and bulwark of truth? I think a lot of people will probably say the Bible. What does the Bible say? The church. The church precedes the Bible. There was no Bible as such. And you'll actually see there's another great passage at the end of Timothy here about Scripture. So the church is where we get this, this authority. What is the church? It's the body of Christ. It was instituted by Christ. And this is Paul exercising his authority to Timothy. Timothy gets his authority from Paul, who gets his authority from Jesus Christ exercising in his name that the church has real authority, and that's what it's talking about. There's a great line about the mystery of our religion that continues. Um, Okay, verse 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and enjoy abstinence from food. This too often is people point out to Catholics, So you've got a bishop who's supposed to get married, and now we're saying there's going to be people in the future that forbid marriage and abstain from certain foods. Kind of sounds like the Catholic Church, right? Wrong. (laughs) Totally misunderstood, totally um, misapplied, understanding that largely what you see is that the church never forbids marriage of anybody, ever. There are tons of groups in the 2,000-year history of the church that actually say that marriage is bad, that sex is bad, and that the body is bad. There are certain Gnostic beliefs, and the church has always opposed them. The church chooses men from a line, chooses priests from men from celibacy who recognize the beauty and the goodness of marriage and are willing to give it up. This is much more referring to different Gnostic and other heretical groups than it is the church. Okay. All right. Verse 4, 6, if you put these instructions before the brethren, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Then he says, train yourself in godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. So Paul often in the past used analogies of, of training athletically, but he's saying actually training in the faith. Eusebia is this great word. It's used a ton of times in, um, in this letter but to train ourselves in godliness. Verse 11 is important for all of us. He says, Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example of speech and conduct and love and faith till I come attend to the public reading of Scripture and to preaching 
and teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophetic utterance when the elders laid their hands upon you. Paul is saying, don't let them despise your youth, Timothy, as a young priest. As a young priest, or actually it would be better to say a young bishop, um, do your duty, which is attend to the reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching, as priests and bishops do, because you have had hands laid upon you. The idea of having hands laid upon you is the ancient practice that the church has used to ordain priests and bishops. And so Paul is reminding Timothy, you've got authority. You form part of this church, which is the pillar and bulwark of the truth, which has authority rooted in Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, chapter 5 just goes in for duties for, for believers. Good stuff in there. I'm going to skip through that for time. Um, it's fairly straightforward. There's some good practical advice um, in there as well. Um, He says at the end of verse five of chapter 5, 2, again, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without favor, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor participate in another man's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Two things to point out. He says, don't be hasty in laying hands yourself on others. So you, Timothy Bishop, who I want you to rule, not rule, well, in a sense, rule in the, in the sense of kingship of Christ, but to govern over the church of Ephesus, you too will need to appoint new priests and bishops. But make sure that you don't do this too hastily when you lay on hands. Make sure these are reputable men. And at the same time, um, I charge you to keep these rules. And he talks about what he's already been talking about, is what in the church we would say is disciplines. Disciplines are rules or customs that can change according to the time. It's an application of doctrine. So the doctrine is that men are to be admitted to the priesthood. The discipline has changed in different times. So the discipline can change, right? So celibacy was not strictly enforced, or at least it would be better to say uh, celibacy or priests were called from, from married men early in the church. And that discipline changes. But the doctrine of ordination of reputable men doesn't change. So you actually see Paul is helping Timothy guide in his rules, his guidance, his disciplines of the church. Uh, chapter 6, we're almost there. Teach and urge, this is chapter 6, verse uh, 2, the end of verse 2. Teach and urge these duties. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords with godliness, he is puffed up and conceit. So this authority comes from Christ. He says at the very end of, uh, sorry, at verse 10 of chapter 6, a great line, for the love of money is the root of all evils. You've probably heard that in secular parlances too. It's not just money that's the root of all evils, it's the love of money. But he says in verse 11, As for you, man of God, shun this. Aim at righteousness. Fight the, good faith of, fight the good fight of faith and take hold to eternal life. So avoid immortality, worldly power, money, Timothy. <laughs> Live an upright call as the bishop of Ephesus that you are. Okay. Um, verse 20. 
perhaps one of the most important lines of the whole thing. Um, just make sure I didn't, didn't miss something here. Nope, I don't think so. Um, chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid the godless chatter and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by, by, for by professing it, some have missed the mark as regards the faith. Grace be with you. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. I don't know what your translation reads, but the more literal translation in the word Greek is paratheke, which would be, O Timothy, guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. Why is that such a big deal? What does the church teach, the Catholic church teach about the sources of revelation? Where do we come to know what we know about God? The answer is the church proposes something called the deposit of faith, which consists of scripture, tradition, apostolic tradition, and read, interpreted, and proclaimed through the magisterium, the teaching authority of the bishops. So this line, O Timothy, guard the deposit which has been entrusted to you. Guard what? The scriptures and the apostolic authority and teachings, the traditions given to you. Guard the deposit. That's the role of the magisterium, (laughs) to guard and faithfully pass on what Christ wanted us to know. This is really important. The deposit of faith. So when anybody asks you where in the Bible is so-and-so teaching as a Catholic, you would say, actually, the better question is where in the deposit of faith is it? Because that's what Timothy and the other apostles were charged to guard and profess and hand on. That the word of God, which is the ultimate authority we believe, is passed down through scripture and tradition. Okay? All right. Whew. Let's jump in and get through 2 Timothy very quickly. 2 Timothy is Paul at the end of his life. He's in prison again. We, have, we just covered the, Roman, uh, the prison letters. This, most people think, is his last writing, and it's beautiful. Because you see Paul move from kind of order and instruction in the church to Timothy to a much more personal, direct. You see his love his encouragement. You see a father who knows his time is coming and his love for his son, Timothy. And so a second letter of Paul to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to Timothy, my beloved. I thank God who I serve with a clear conscience as I did fathers. When I remember constant, when I remember you constantly in my prayers, as I remember your tears, I long night and day to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. So Paul talks about the knowledge of Timothy's family, the desire to see him, and is a great encouragement is to what? (laughs) Rekindle the gift of your priestly ordination. Rekindle the gift of God through the laying on of my hands that has given you real power. And again, what what did I repeat over and over again in the earlier letters of Paul? What what does grace empower us to do? Withstand suffering. Because he says, Do not be ashamed then of testifying to the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But take your share of suffering for the gospel 
in the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of his own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago. For this gospel, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, and therefore I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Again, I'm not sure for that last line what your Bible says, but the, the same word as at the end of 1 Timothy. Guard the deposit, the paratheke, which has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within Paul and Timothy in a special way as bishops to guard the deposit of faith, to make sure that what we believe as Christians today is what Jesus wanted us to believe, is sound doctrine. And it's been handed down for 2,000 years. It's amazing. We don't have to doubt what it is we're supposed to believe. The church has handed and faithfully carried and passed on the deposit of faith. And you see that early on with Paul and Timothy. Okay. All right. Then he says, chapter 2, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me before many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He again, take your share of suffering as a good soldier of Christ. So Timothy, guard the deposit, and then what? Entrust the deposit to other faithful men who can trust, who can pass this on. Apostolic succession, right there in the beginning of Scripture from Paul, from Jesus to Paul, Paul to Timothy. Again, Paul gives some other good analogies about an athlete. He mentions again that even though he's in prison, in verse 9, the word of God is not chained. He says, endure everything for the sake of the elect. A beautiful uh, passage in verse 11. The saying is sure, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul says, remind them of this, charge them to avoid disputes, but rightly hand on the word of truth, he says in verse 15. He talks about how, in the next section, just about how there are, in a house, there are things of gold and silver, but also of wood and earthware, some for noble use, some for ignoble use, he says. But if we purify ourselves, the vessels that we are can be used for noble use, consecrated and useful to the master. So shun youthful passions and aim at righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Basically, get rid of youthful passions. Whatever is not noble in you, purify yourself. Chapter 3, the last chapter, he says, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of stress. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, prolificates, fierce, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding the form of religion, but denying the power of it. 
you want to reread that one again, I'd recommend it. If that doesn't describe the state of our world and even many religions today, and far too many in our own faith, holding the form of religion but, not, but denying the power of it, I think we can be convicted of that too, right? How many people are lovers of self and money and proud and arrogant today, and yet they somewhat seemingly practice a form of religion? Paul is warning Timothy, and the Holy Spirit clearly wanted this in Scripture because the Holy Spirit wanted us to be warned of that in our lives as well. Okay, Paul's charge to Timothy. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, You have observed my teaching, I endured, and now verse 12, Yet from them all the, I had persecutions, but the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceivers and deceived. Does Paul ever promise the prosperity gospel? That's why I do believe this is Paul that's writing this over and over again. <laughs> the righteous will face persecutions. But as for you, he's talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's going to be people that try to oppose the faith. They're going to face persecutions. And what do you put your faith in? Where do you take, where does Paul exhort Timothy? Trust the scriptures. What sacred writings is he talking about? Well, the, Old, the New Testament is not yet written in full, I didn't point it out. There's actually a beautiful thing in 1 Timothy where Paul mentions Scripture and takes a quote from Luke, which is very interesting, so that Paul was aware that Luke was writing Scripture. Paul and Luke are cohorts, as we talked about at the very beginning of this course. But all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul absolutely exhorts the power of Scripture. Interestingly enough, though, the word is all scripture is inspired by God, but it's not only scripture is inspired. Many non-Catholic Christians will use or attempt to use this verse to defend the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. But as we've already shown that the pillar and bulwark of truth is the church, that the deposit of faith includes scripture and apostolic tradition guarded and passed on through the church, Scripture is amazing. I love Scripture. This is why I'm teaching you guys. <laughs> the name of this thing is read the Bible. And that's why, because Scripture is profitable. It's going to help you. It's going to get you through the trials, but it's not the only thing we have. Okay? Chapter 4, he urges Timothy to be preach the truth in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves, teachers to suit their own likings, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, always be steady, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, for, and fulfill your ministry. So does that also sound like today? That people will keep the form of religion but choose to follow the people they like to listen to? To suit their own likings? Then Paul says, 
he starts to get very serious towards the end of his life. Some great letters, or some great words, some of the last that he has written down for his life. I am already on the point of being sacrificed. For the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all those who have loved his appearing. I think it's beautiful that Paul, as I've often said, Paul is a Catholic priest. He's an apostle, but he is a priest. He understands the role of sacrifice, and some of his last words is, I am being sacrificed. I have made my life a sacrifice, namely, I have conformed my life to Christ. And because of that, I'm ready to meet Christ and the confidence that Christ will reward him. I think that's just incredible that that's Paul's last words. I am at the point of being sacrificed. He then ends, as he often does, with some personal instructions. You'll recognize some famous names in there. He mentions Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus. That's awesome. He says, bring the cloak you've left and the books and the parchments. Paul's worried about his writings, even till the very end. And then at the end it says, In my first defense, no one took part. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength to proclaim the word fully, that all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He greets a few more people at the very end. Some very famous names are there, Pudus and Linus. Linus is um, the successor of Peter as Pope. Linus is the, the second Pope, you could say. Some even say he's the first Pope, as the Pope is understood as the successor to Peter. Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement. So you have in Scripture to the Pope <laughs> that follows Peter. Very cool. But Paul ends with his confidence in the Lord, his love of various brethren that he has met throughout his life, and then he ends with the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. So that is Paul's writings. A lot there, quite a bit to cover in one class between three letters, but you see Paul's concern with the church, the order, the succession, faithful doctrine being passed on, um, people being ordained as priests and bishops that are worthy of it, concern for actions, understanding what it means to be saved, but ultimately recognizing the confidence in Jesus Christ to save as the singular source of salvation. And so that is Paul. Um, hopefully this has been very helpful to kind of see the whole um, teaching array of Paul. You see many of his themes repeated, and you see his words are, in fact, Scripture inspired by God and profitable for us um, in so many different ways. And so we trust Paul. We see that um, at the end of the day, he is, well, he's obviously the, the patron of our student center here, but an incredible saint, a wonderful apostle, a great priest. St. Paul the Apostle, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of RTB. 
If you have questions you would like answered on the podcast, you can email them to Father Tim at tmergen at uwcatholic.org. That's T-M-E-R-G-E-N at uwcatholic.org. Thanks, and be assured of my prayers for you as you read the Bible. Thank you.